You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an orphan black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And this is not a spoiler free episode. We are going to be talking about the first half of season two, meaning episodes 201 through 205. And there will be lots of spoilers <laughs> for those episodes. So if you have not seen them, beware that uh, that you could there's going to be spoilers. <laughs> and spoilers, period. Spoilers, exclamation point. That's my point. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and we have a guest with us. We are joined by Sally, who joined us for our clone science episode, as well as the season two speculation episode nearly a year ago. Hi, friends. This isn't actually Sally. I'm Sally's clone. <laughs> We're similar, though. How similar? I will say, Sally... Our our clone science episode is is one of our favorite one of our most often referenced favorite episodes of our of our listeners. So there you go. Hmm. Well, who doesn't love science? It's a lot of people, sadly, <laughs> but I do. I do too. It's science. We'll have to have you back to talk about more science if there's any any insights you have. Hmm. <laughs> And Sally's like, way to put me on the spot, Chris. <laughs> well, I always love joining for podcasts. I will need to get some insights, but. <laughs> I think you can order them on Amazon. You might even get free shipping. I used to get my insights on eBay, but then I got burned one too many times. I understand. I understand. Although I do think there is a lot more of science to talk about in Orphan Black. There have been some oh, yeah. big reveals in season two. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe post season three. Take notes during the season, Sally. We'll we'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah, it feels like school. <laughs> as I assign Sally homework for the next two and a half months. I like it. <laughs> Tell me what to do. <laughs> Let's go ahead and talk about our plan for the next couple of episodes, Chris. We we got some requests to go back and maybe revisit some of the season two episodes to lead up to season three and we didn't think we had enough to say to go back and do you know a, an individual episode for each episode plus that'd take a while so we thought we would kind of bundle them so what are our plans for the next three episodes it's it's we're going to do first half of season two and then we're going to do the second half of season two as you might have guessed already <laughs> and then we are going to do a season three speculation episode not unlike last year's season two speculation episode which, of course... Which will not feature me. I was going to say, Stephanie will not be joining us for the episode. Maybe maybe you and I can record a quick thing and you can make any guesses based on season two happenings. I don't know. Well, I was just about to promise people, if you don't like me, if you listen to the show <laughs> for Chris, I won't be there. So this will be this will be your favorite episode in a long time. Nobody. Nobody <laughs> will tune in. Sally will be there, maybe. I don't know. I shouldn't That's commit true. her. I have no idea. That's true. Sally might be there. Tune in for Sally. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, we have secured a couple of guests. Cool. So that's our plan for the next few episodes. But today we are talking about the first half of season two. And do we want to start by just talking about the first half of season two generally, kind of the story arc that goes through those first five episodes? Sure. I Yes. What are your What are your thoughts, Sally? We wanted. I, I guess we should also say part of our plan was to include other folks on these revisiting episodes, so we don't just repeat a bunch of stuff we've said already. So let's start with you, Sally. What What were sort of your general thoughts about the the first half of the season? Well, I'm always so interested in how Orphan Black tells the story because I think that 
like you guys have discussed a lot, they don't have much wasted story time or narrative and every single thing that's in the episodes is there for a reason and often referenced in subsequent episodes or even seasons. And so when I was thinking about season two and how it all came together, you know, it started out in a really kind of a bad or alienated place for most of the clones at the beginning. Like each of the main characters had some kind of crisis that, um, that they were going through and they were all quite separate after, you know, the traumatic events of the end of season one. So Sarah, you know, had to rescue Kira and then she is on the run. She doesn't know who she can trust. And she had shot Helena who she had learned was her sister. And then art was also just over her. So you know, she's not in a great place. Um, she might be possibly estranged also from Mrs. S. And then Allison is just very isolated. I think she, uh, you know, still suspects Donnie of being her monitor. Um, maybe not, but she's also apart from the other clones and the kind of sisterhood that they had. And she's kind of downward spiraling and using drugs and alcohol Kasima has voluntarily gone to work at the Dyad Institute to help find a cure for her disease, and she's sick. She's keeping a secret, though, too. She's keeping it secret from the rest of the clones. She's told Delphine that she's sick, but nobody else. And uh, Helena is, you know, she, in the first part of season two, she's comes into a hospital because she's been shot by her sister. And then, you know, when she's treated, um, she's immediately kidnapped by the farming Prolethians. So, you know, they're all having some sort of crisis and they're not all in sync with each other. They've just been very disrupted by the end of the first season. Especially considering we thought Helena had died. Right. Yeah, because thinking about the first episode of the, the premiere episode of season two, I think the only clones we see together together are Kasima and Sarah. Am I wrong? Because we, we have the scene where Allison's on Skype, but I think that's the only time the three of them are in the same room together is when Allison's on Skype. I think you're totally right. And I mean, of course, part of that is driven by Allison signing the contract with Dyad that, you know, she'll commit to what it is they want her to do. And in return, they'll leave her and her family alone. Right, because Allison was going to meet up with Sarah in the pilot, but they never actually did. Not the pilot, mm-hmm. the first episode of season two. Yeah, but then Art and Angie arrested her before they could meet up to hand off the gun. Yeah. So we have uh, Sarah and Cosima sharing a scene scene or two together, but like like you said, Cosima still has this secret that she's keeping from from Sarah and from Felix that keeps her isolated, even though they're in the same room. Whereas Allison is very physically isolated from the other clones, as well as Helena, of course. It was so weird rewatching. I had to keep reminding myself that the others didn't know that Cosima was sick. Did you, mm-hmm. either of you, have that same experience? A little bit. Yes. A little bit. It was actually your guys' um, individual show episodes that reminded me that uh, she was keeping it a secret as well. But, and you know, it's not just her. I mean, Allison has her own secrets too about her right. substance and abuse Ainsley. And, you know, and Ainsley for sure. That one eats her up a bit and, you know, maybe kind of fuels her substance abuse. I think Sarah has a secret too that we about find Helena. out 
about Helena and then also, you know, the big secret about Kira's dad when we meet Cal. Right. But 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 the secret she's definitely keeping from the clones as well as Felix is that she she shot Helena because Felix even asks her directly about it in the first in the first episode. And she's just like, Helena's gone. She's just gone. I don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But but you're right. She also has the secret about Cal that comes to light later on. The thing with Helena actually kind of parallels the thing with Katya in the first season. Yeah. Meaning in that regard that here's somebody, a, another clone who had died and she was so reluctant to tell anyone, even Felix. Mm, yeah. Oh, you're right. So, yeah, I think that's a, a great observation. Our clones are very, very separated in the first, especially the very beginning part of the of season two. But I, I do think that we see, even through the first five episodes, we see the them coming back together in small ways. Yeah, I mean, I think, and Sarah's the protagonist. She uh, She returns to Toronto and... She she is um, cable tied to the shower, but she does reconcile with Elena, and that's nice. And also, she starts to mend fences with Art. And, uh, you know, Allison also, after going to rehab, you know, she, I think she starts to kind of rediscover who she is and what's important to her. I think that Kasima working at Dyad, she, it feels like she starts to make progress on learning more about the disease that's affecting her and the other clones. And then that, some of that comes in with Jennifer Fitzsimmons too, and the autopsy and, you know, kind of her video diaries that she and Delphine, you know, watch together. But then Helena has the most dramatic, I think, uh, you know, way of, as is Helena's way. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Like ridding herself of her isolation. She might've been the only clone that wasn't keeping secrets just because you know maybe that's just not in her nature but she definitely well, she does keep the secret about what the prolethians did to her from sarah starting in in episode five because she starts to try to tell sarah but then she won't finish what the conversation because mm-hmm. sarah says to felix you know so they did something to her but she won't say so she's even keeping secrets as well yeah. But one wonders, you know, there's a scene where she goes back to the Prolethians and they explain to her what they're doing. So to me, it's sort Maybe of like, a, is, did she fully understand what happened or did she just know right. that something happened? Because we saw her having flashbacks to it, but I don't know how much she knows about what happened. You right. know what I mean? That's a good point. That's a good point. So is it a she won't say or is it a she can't really say? Yeah. But I remember when she first told Sarah about it, she says they took something from me. And she seems very traumatized about it. Maybe she has an inkling. It did seem when Henrik talked to her about, you know, the fertilization and her babies that she kind of, that it was new information to her. So maybe she didn't know exactly what the purpose was of harvesting her eggs. Right. Well, that's what I'm trying to get at is because she does say they took something from inside me but that's sort of i think as far as she says to sarah or anybody but i felt like watching that scene that she was talking about her visceral feeling that something had been taken from her and she knew it was important you know on a gut level but you Mm -hmm. know she didn't cognitively know what it was they had taken she just knew that it was pretty fundamental yeah I think that's a good point, Chris, that she had a sense that something had been taken from her against her will, and that was traumatic for her, but perhaps she didn't know how to articulate 
what exactly had happened to her. She just didn't know. Right. Well, because she'd been drugged the whole time, too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows how much she actually knew of what happened. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. But yeah, I think at the end of the the first half, we're definitely on an upswing in regards to Sarah and Helena. They're they're off on their road trip together. And, you know, there is some hope for Kasima. She started getting preliminary treatments with with Dr. Leakey and Allison's on rehab. So I do think we're, we are a bit in an upswing in season five. Little do they know. Little do they know. <laughs> when is it going to come? Ah, <laughs> uh, this show. I think I might have said season five. At the end of episode five is what I meant. They're at an upswing. But then there's more pain. <laughs> I was re-listening to some of our episodes. And I think it was the episode we did for episode three was basically just me saying damn it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe it. I can believe it. Anyway. So do we? let's talk a little bit maybe about the individual episodes. I made notes. Chris made notes. We've got notes. <laughs> <laughs> so many notes. Mostly, most of my notes is me reiterating things. So I'm not going to talk as quite as much. But I guess I'll, I'll start us off by talking about the first episode by saying, I was reminded how much the premiere just kicked ass. It's a really good episode. <laughs> I like that you made a note that it kicks ass. <laughs> Do you disagree? I think it's a great episode. No, it, it is great. I mean, it starts off, it it literally starts off with Sarah running. <laughs> you know, that's, that's good stuff. And they managed to keep up that momentum pretty much through the entire episode, except with certain little scenes. But they, they started out at a really high momentum and they really keep it up. That's impressive. Well, they've they've got a good pace is the thing because yeah, it starts off exactly starts off running and then she stops at a coffee shop and you're kind of like okay but then she like kicks through a wall <laughs> you know just your just your average day I drove by that coffee shop when I was in Toronto but I didn't go in really did they have a hole in their wall <laughs> <laughs> a Sarah sized hole <laughs> <laughs> not that I saw. i know we talked about this in our lingering i'm pretty sure i shouldn't say i know i'm pretty sure we talked about this in sort of our lingering questions from season two episode but definitely when mark kills that guy you're you're reminded just how coldly he he did that it's easy to forget about that by the end of the second season i think not me. But I never really, forget that. You never forget. <laughs> well, it's not that I forgot that he did it, but just how just how coldly he does it. He just seems so cold-hearted. Right. That that's sort of my big issue, I guess, with Mark as a character because we get to the end of the season, I'm kind of like, are we supposed to forgive him for killing that guy? Cuz I don't think I can. Oh, you know, Mark is clearly very under the influence of Henrik. So, I don't know about forgiving him, but it's not like he did that thing in a vacuum. He, you know, was under the, he's been under the influence for who knows how many years of a charismatic cult leader. It can't have been that long because he was in the military before that. That's true, but. And he's only 19, I think they said he was, so. Yeah, maybe like a year. But still, I think Sally has a point. He's under the influence of. A very charismatic, dangerous person. No, no, person. that's totally fair. But it's just one of those, I, I wonder, I wonder about things. It's true. I mean, people have free will and they are responsible for their actions. So let's throw the book at him. 
<laughs> I'm definitely not looking for reasons to kind of categorize Mark as a good guy. But on the other hand, I think he was he was portrayed that way to be kind of enthralled to Henrik. So then later in the second half of the season, he can redeem himself by, you know, the actions that he takes. That's fair. Because even in these first few episodes, we see him act really ruthlessly, but then he has some tender, though kind of, in my opinion, creepy scenes with, with, with Grace. So they, I think they are trying to give him levels, but I don't think that they completely erase the fact that he's not a good guy necessarily, at least not at this point. I think he redeems himself a little, but not entirely. He reminds me a little bit of Paul, actually. Paul can be super... Well, they do have that conversation. Ruthless, yeah. And yeah. They, they talk. And I mean, the way that Paul interacts with Sarah at first, you know, and Felix later, I mean, just he's he can be um, a real cold dude that does ruthless things to get things done. But then we've also seen him be nice and kind of tender with Sarah and maybe have a little movement on his own toward not adhering so dogmatically to what the military wants him to do, whatever it is. Smooshy mooshy house cat, Paul. <laughs> Smooshy mooshy house cat. It's been a long time since we've called him that because he really wasn't that at all in season two. Season two. No, he was not. House cat Paul was not was out, out of the house. <laughs> he, was, he became he turned feral, feral, feral. Cat Paul. <laughs> yes. He was also skittish house cat Paul. Like a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs when Mrs. S came outside to give him some tea. I don't trust the biscuits she has in her pocket. <laughs> the big thing that popped out to me when I was... I, I'll, I'll say up front, I listened rather than watch the episodes. I listened to them while I was at work. So if I get a few things kind of wrong or I'm uncertain, that's why, because I was hearing and not, not seeing everything. So... The clone phone thing being disconnected at the beginning of this episode. I get it. We're supposed to think that Dyad did it. And because that's what Felix essentially tells us in the bar. But I still in my head, I'm like, how did they know how to disconnect those numbers that she had that phone? And I think I'm just supposed to let it go and let it be a indicator of the type of power that we see Daniel has later in the season when he's trying to track down Sarah. But I still have this moment of, but how did they know? Well, they arrested Sarah. Right. So is it possible that it, the phone was among her personal effects and maybe either Daniel or one of the Dyad inside guys, maybe Dyad has somebody placed inside the police and were able to like have access to her phone so they found out the numbers that way? I'll, I'll buy that. That's That's good, Chris. That's good. That is a good one. Never thought of it. Because as her lawyer, he helped get her released. So it's it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he, even he himself, had possession of her personal effects for a time. Right. All this time I was thinking he was psychic, but that is a really good explanation. <laughs> Here to help. Do these people not put passcodes on their phone, though? Like, how can, you know, just Daniel Rosen get the phone and... Is it one, two, three, four? Come on, Sarah. <laughs> Well, they're basic phones. Maybe maybe they don't have passcode options as like the one of the things that you set up really easily. Because obviously with smartphones, it's one of the first things they do when you're setting up your phone. But with these type of 
more low-tech phones. You have to go into the settings and stuff. Mm. Too much work, Sarah. Uh, Sally, too much work. <laughs> I'm with you. Maybe maybe it was Kira. Like, there we go. Like, Kira. <laughs> Easy to guess. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I was also reminded in listening to this first episode of Ramon and how much I like Ramon and how sad I am that they didn't bring back Ramon. I am also sad, sad that they did not bring back Ramon. Do you share our, our appreciation for Ramon, Sally? I like Ramon and I think he's cute. Wait, remind me who he is, though. <laughs> he's, he's Allison's drug and gun dealer who then oh. delivers the flowers to Felix's apartment. Right, okay. Who works at, like, the chain store. <laughs> the not Walmart, but Walmart. He was amusing. I'm not sure if I have all this affection for him, though. I don't know. I for kind of a small character, he he sticks out to me, and I I he kind of is a little bit flirty with Felix, and I thought maybe they might bring him back as a potential love interest for Felix, but he didn't come back, and that made me sad. Stephanie just wants all the love interests for Felix. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But I think Colin has pretty much had it up to here with all of the being arrested and the lube. So <laughs> Can't blame him. Yeah. Oh, I did. I loved that scene, that whole scene, though. Yeah. <laughs> At least the first part of it, not the second. We'll get to it, though. <laughs> we'll get to it. We never did solve the mystery of Delphine's magically growing hair, though. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> It was a joke. <laughs> Nobody laughed. It's fine. <laughs> well, you know, genetic enhancements, right? This is what I'm saying. I think Delphine has some super prolete or not prolethean, super <laughs> neolutionist. Uh, neolutionist it yes, it enhanced hair genes. That's my theory. <laughs> uh, I think Evelyn Brochu has <laughs> enhanced hair genes, period. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe oh, she's man. Rapunzel. Maybe. Maybe. Do we think that Allison ever knew that Sarah was responsible for her almost kidnapping? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if she figured it out. Yeah. Because why else would they... But I don't think they ever talk about it, right? No, I don't think so. They definitely don't. Yeah. But I mean... it. It's pretty clear in the scene with Daniel that Daniel's like, oh, sorry, wrong one. <laughs> well, the thing is, she clearly right. knows that it was Dyad who was coming after her, but I don't think that she necessarily knew that Sarah sicked them on her. Right. I mean, yeah, that, that's sort of the thing. I mean, I'm sure she figured out that they're looking for Sarah, but whether or not she knew that Sarah told them that she'd be where Allison was, I don't know. Although, why they'd fall for that in the first place, I don't know either. But <laughs> Well, Sarah kind of has a pattern of doing that now that I think about it. So, you know, she also kind of, well, later in the season, we'll get to that, I'm sure, but leaves Helena to her own devices. Actually, we won't get to that. That's oh. not in one of our episodes. <laughs> <laughs> next week. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you we'll guys get to that next. You guys will get to that next week, where you yes, know it does seem like Sarah's got a pattern of sacrificing folds, though, when she needs to for her own purposes. Do you have any other big questions, Chris? I just have a couple of like random little comments. 
So the reasoning Rachel gives for keeping Paul around, she says that he knows what makes Sarah tick. Which I kind of doubt. (laughs) Do we think that's an excuse? Because I think that's an excuse. Because I think she's probably keeping him around as a power trip. I think she thinks he could be a useful thing to use against Sarah. Plus, I do think that the whole... That whole dynamic that she cultivates between the two of them, I'll put it that way. I I think that she wanted to do that from the beginning as sort of a power trip play, as you put it. She's very jealous of Sarah, too. You know, the fact that Sarah could have a child and, you know, so she's just going to take whatever she can. That's my feeling on it, too, because... I mean, the whole what makes Sarah tick thing. Okay, Kira, Felix, and family. That's all you need to know about Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> right? That is that is the key to Sarah. That's not that complicated. <laughs> and I don't even, you know, I don't know. I think she just was like, Sarah had him, and so now Rachel wants him. Yep. I completely agree. I completely agree. It's total sibling rivalry. She wants to stick it to her. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah. Rachel and Sarah could double date with Beth and Allison. Oh, God. <laughs> awkward. Clone problem. I feel so awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything like that going on. I think it's totally just a sibling or whatever, genetic identical rivalry. There we go. Not to change the subject, but I'm going to change the subject. <laughs> Please do. So presumably the feds were looking into the Prolethians because, you know, the diner incident. Right. But there was never any follow-up on it. Do we think they might at some point in the future? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. And I've been wondering how they're going to pursue the Prolethean storyline in season three from the little bits of stuff that I've read that's come out about season three. I've seen a lot of stuff about kind of dyad and the, the, you know, what's it called? The, the group that's above them. Top Top side. side. Top side. And that sort of thing. I have seen less about Prolethean related stuff. So I'm curious how the Prolethians will still be involved. And I do wonder if there will be, more follow-up in regards to this federal investigation of them. I kind of think it might be outside the purview of the story, though. So I don't. I just don't know. I'm just not sure. Well, are we talking about the Prolethians writ large, or are we talking about the farming Prolethians? Because the writ farming- large, I think. Okay. Yeah. They seem like an international or worldwide organization, so maybe Interpol needs to be in charge of that instead of you know, the feds, which I guess are the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I would love to see some Mounties in Northern Black. <laughs> Dudley Do-Right. Could- I do actually have a, I, I have a note in episode two that Art does specifically say that there are a number of Prolethean branches. Mm-hmm. Which we got a taste of in season two. So yeah, it's good. Good that he also confirms it, that there's others out there. It's kind of like all the Prolethean branches are clones of each other, but, you know, similar, but distinct. There you go. Who knows? But I I have seen people wondering about, you know, well, are we done with the Prolethians since Helena set fire to the farm? But but Mm -hmm. they're not the only ones. Yeah. They're like a bad penny. Keep coming back. A bad penny? Haven't you ever heard that expression? He's like a bad penny. He keeps coming back. It's like if you go spend a bad penny, then, you know, it stays in circulation. Hmm. I think that's what it means anyway. 
been saying it all my life. Maybe I've been using it wrong. <laughs> and it turns out it's not actually like a widely used expression. It was just <laughs> just something Sally made up at some point. No, I'm kidding. My first thought would be that it was a bad coin because if you tried to put it in a vending machine, it oh. wouldn't take it. But vending machines don't take pennies, so that doesn't make sense. That is a great... Oh. But maybe they did at some point. Like, you could maybe get, like, a gumball or something for a penny. I don't know. I'm going to Google it. I think when I was a kid, you could get a uh, a gumball for a penny. You okay. can. Yeah, and those little machines, the ones that, like... Sally is 75 <laughs> years old. Back in my days, honey, when you put a penny in the machine, you got a gumball out, it was covered in salmonella. <laughs> But we didn't care because it was either salmonella, gumballs, or none at all. Unbidden. <laughs> Bad penny. We didn't have shoes. <laughs> Sally had shoes. <laughs> what? Hmm. What's happening? <laughs> Turn up like a bad penny. Just a couple more brief comments about the first episode. I like that Art compares Sarah to a bad smell. When she shows up outside of his apartment, you're like a bad smell. (laughs) Just the way that he delivers the line. I really like it. At this point, to me at least, Art's crustiness has become endearing. So when he says stuff like that, I'm like, aw, Art. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other thing that I wanted to mention was it still bugs the crap out of me that the... I I think she was a security person. I'm not sure. But somebody comes up to Delphine at the party and she calls her Miss Cormier instead of Dr. Cormier. And it bugs me. I'm done. That's fair. (laughs) That's like when people call them Morgan on Lost Girl Ebony. That bugs you too, Stephanie. It does. Well, okay. The reason it really bugs me in the context of Orphan Black is they pretty much always call Dr. Leakey Dr. Leakey. No one has ever called him Mr. Leakey. It's either Leakey or Aldous or Dr. Leakey. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is further commentary on Orphan Black's part, but like in a subtle way? I'm gonna, I'm gonna hope so. Ooh. I'll go with that. That ladies don't get no respect. They don't get the same amount of respect that men do. Because even like Delphine, who slept with a guy, refers to Dr. Leakey as Dr. Leakey at times to people. Let's not talk about Delphine sleeping with Dr. Leakey. Okay, <laughs> you're go the ahead, one Chris. who brought it up. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm man. saying it to me. I blocked it up. Blocked it out, I mean. I blocked it up. Let's say a cask of... And Sally's like, damn it, Stephanie. (laughs) I had successfully blocked it from my memory. Okay, my only other comment about episode 201 was... uh, (laughs) And for some reason, I don't remember seeing this before. Maybe I noticed it before and I just had forgotten. But when Felix goes to see Allison, Allison... (laughs) at one point, like midway through the discussion, realizes what Felix is wearing, says, what are you wearing? And then she starts buttoning up his coat for him. Yes, because <laughs> he's wearing the ashless chaps. Yes, he is. But It's a very cute Allison moment. I just didn't remember her like buttoning up his coat after she said that. Mm-hmm. Like he's a child. She's very ma- maternal. I gotta tell you, though, like, I I get it. Sometimes when you've been mothering children for a while, like, you can't help but, you know, mother everyone around you. People come over to my house and I'm like, let me make you some eggs. (laughs) (laughs) Is it always eggs or do they get a choice? (laughs) It's just what we have on hand, but if it's the morning, then... 
You know, that's my preferred breakfast thing to make instead of, you know, I wouldn't whip someone up some pancakes, but I would. Damn it. Yeah, I know. I I totally would. But like, (laughs) that's not the point. The point is. I mean, never to show up at Sally's for breakfast. (laughs) You won't make me pancakes. I'll totally make you pancakes. Moving on. Episode 202, governed by sound reason and true religion. Nothing? I have written no notes for this one. (laughs) (laughs) I'll start us off. I just feel like I've been talking a lot, so I was going to let Art... uh, You're not Art. Let Chris... (laughs) I was looking at your first bullet, which says Art. I think Stephanie's saying that she hates me. No. Yes. I'm not going to be your friend on Facebook. (laughs) Anymore. Chris, Uh, why don't you start it off? So, yes, as I mentioned before, in this episode, Art does say that there are a number of Prolethean branches, which I made a note of because, well, because of what I already mentioned. significant to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, oh, so I have questions about Art's suspension because they implied that Daniel was behind it. Right. So, will there be follow-through on the suspension now that Daniel is dead? Well, it seemed like he was suspended well past Daniel's death. So, I don't think that they suddenly took away the suspension because Daniel was was dead. Well, that's not what I... I'm guessing she got, you know, he got a certain amount of time suspended. Right. But whether or not they're going to... Well, what what kind of follow-through are you looking for, I guess? Well, I guess what I'm trying to say here is, like, okay, so Art got suspended because Daniel filed a complaint or mm-hmm. whatever. I don't know. Right. So, you know, he's suspended for however long, but presumably Daniel's not going to file charges against him or anything because he right. can't now. Right. So, like, what what do we think is going to happen post-suspension? How long do we think he was suspended for? It seems like a couple months at least. I mean, I had the feeling yeah. that it wasn't just Daniel, though. Um, I thought that maybe Angie had a hand in it, too, because she knew. Um, no, because she was completely clueless about why he was suspended when she shows up at his apartment in the second episode. But didn't she also kind of rat him out at the end of the first season about, you know, being aware that Sarah wasn't Beth? And she reported to their lieutenant or something. She did. She did go to Hardcastle with that. the info. Yeah. But Art wasn't in trouble then. Yeah. Not he didn't get s- not permanent trouble. He didn't get suspended <laughs> until after the confrontation with Daniel at the at the hotel. So I'm pretty sure that's why he was suspended. And Angie had no idea about that. Okay. But the that's the season lasts at least probably a month or so because Allison goes to rehab for the season. So I think Art was suspended at least a month or two. And, and you know, I don't know that necessarily if Daniel was still alive, if he would be fired or permanently taken off the force or anything like that. So, so I don't know, Chris. I'll just, I'm not going to answer your question. It was mostly <laughs> a rhetorical question. I just wanted to discuss it. <laughs> I think, well, you know, I think it's a great question. I bet you that Art returns to the police force because otherwise, you know, he doesn't have much purpose in the story. He can't kind of hang around being a free agent helping Sarah. I don't think he has enough motivation to do that. For sure, he was intrigued by what he saw when Helena escaped from the Prolethians. But, you know, I think without being back on the force, um, you know, he's just, he doesn't have the 
resources or the motivation or the wherewithal necessarily to keep investigating the Prolethians or what's going on with the entire conspiracy. So he kind of has to be back on the force. You don't think he's invested because of Beth? I think he's intrigued and invested, but not to the point where, um, I mean, shit has gotten crazy, you know, and, uh, like he and Beth were partners for sure. But, you know, I think without the, you know, authority, the authority that being a police officer gives to him, you know, to continue, he's just, uh, a free agent. And, you know, I don't think he can make that much progress unless he joins up with Sarah and company, but, I don't think that he would do that, even though he and Felix are buddies now. I agree. I, I think he needs to, story-wise, be reinstated in order to remain relevant. I think he's exhausted the information that he could get not being on the force. So I, I'm with Sally. Fair enough. So my my big question from this episode that I still feel confused about is... When Delphine and Kasima are talking to Dr. Leakey, Dr. Leakey's kind of grilling Kasima about, did you know Sarah was going to impersonate you and come to the dyad? You're uniquely positioned to help her by working here. And it really seemed to me, at least, he was kind of testing her. Like, if she is too close with Sarah, she it might not be prudent for, for them to employ her. And Kasima, of course, lies and is like, oh, we never trust her. And Delphine essentially backs her up. But I'm not entirely sure if Delphine knew that Cosima was lying. Because when Delphine encounters Cosima at the party, she, sorry, when Delphine cons- uh, encounters Sarah dressed as Cosima at the party, she asks Sarah, does Cosima know you're doing this? And Sarah's answer is very indirect. It's like she doesn't have to if, unless you, you know, if you help me or something like that. So I don't know. What do y'all think? Do you think Delphine, how much knowledge do you think Delphine had at this point? I don't know. But certainly, Kasima should notice that her glasses and jacket are missing, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think she was trying to imply that Sarah took them from her, right? So I know, I'm trying to make a joke. <laughs> I think that Delphine is in the dark, because um, we do have that other scene of Kasima answering the phone and keeping it a secret who she's talking to, keeping it from Delphine. So I think Delphine is in the dark and sort of trying to, uh, you know, she's transgressing and, uh, but also on her own journey to prove to Kasima and to her sisters that she can be trusted. Right. Cause Kasima does say, I think it's in the first episode. Yeah. She says in the first episode that she is going to try to protect her her clone sisters even though she's in a relationship with Delphine now so I think it's reasonable that that might be a measure Kasima took as she didn't fully tell Delphine that she was involved in helping Sarah plausible deniability is what you're exactly. saying exactly I think that's fair I think it's possible that Delphine suspects but I don't know that she knows yeah how's but that for I an answer that, I think you're right and I think that she also rolls with it you know instead of exposing everyone if she kind of catches on that something's afoot she's not gonna rat them out because she does oh, yeah. she is on her journey towards you know totally being one with the clones yeah. or one being one with one of the clones anyway yeah trust is what which, you're getting which, at I think right trust, exactly thank you <laughs> 
Exactly. You and guys, that's why, why I, say something in one word if you can use 15. <laughs> <laughs> but I, exactly. But that, you know, again, that's why I think I have this question is I could see Delphine totally just wanting to cover for Cosima. So it's like, is she just covering or does she actually know? Mm-hmm. But Maybe I, I think both. it's okay. Yeah, I think it's okay that I don't have a definite answer. I was just curious about, about your takes on that particular moment. That's what I love about this show, though. I mean, there are lots of things that are clear, but there's also enough character motivation that is left somewhat ambiguous that we have lots to talk about it. (laughs) And moving on to episode 203, mingling its own nature with it. So here's my big question. How did the farming Prolethians know about the Birdwatchers? Did the Birdwatchers approach the Prolethians? Like, what's, what's the deal? This is, I think, a really good question, because I, it's super convenient that the Birdwatchers were able to hook up with the Prolethians, given their relationship with Mrs. S. I think it's a great question. Because the Birdwatchers are supposed to be super secretive, right? How did that happen, is what kept bothering me during the episode. I have no idea. Because <laughs> the only hint <laughs> we really answer. get is that... That Brenda says, you know, I found God or something to that extent, and he has deep pockets. So, you know, we have this impression she got fed up with basically fighting the good fight for no money. And somehow a religious message appealed to her. And on top of that, there was money involved as well. So I think she's turned, you know, we get the sense that she is betraying Mrs. S for money. But as far as how the Prolethians conveniently found the bird watchers who had such a close relationship with someone with such a close relationship with Sarah is a great question. And I think just sort of a matter of convenience of plot that I don't know we're ever going to figure out, but it's a great question, Chris. I mean, it's not beyond the realm of possibility, of course, but of course, because maybe the Prolethians put out some message that they were looking for this person and there are ways to explain it. It's just that they don't. <laughs> yeah. And if the Prolethians oppose the Neolutionists, do the bird watchers also oppose the Neolutionists and Dyad, which is an arm of the Neolutionists? Maybe the bird watchers sought out the Prolethians. You know, maybe maybe she didn't actually find God, mm. but maybe she just wanted to cash in. I mean, I assumed that was the case. I thought that was just her way of saying that without directly saying Prolethians. I don't know. because the, But there's also the interesting thing that she doesn't know what Project Lita is. When Mrs. S says those words, she's like, she says, I don't know what that is. So how much does she actually know about the Prolethians' mission when she was recruited? Hmm. Right. Which is yeah. why I'm saying, like, maybe it was a matter of the Prolethians through whatever underground shady channels released, like, a picture of a of a clone and, like, have you seen this woman? And I don't know. Or known associates, or I don't know. Yeah, the the only thing is that with a picture, she hadn't seen Sarah in a while, so it's possible she wouldn't have recognized a current picture of a clone. Right, which is why I went on to known associates, because maybe they had a picture of Mrs. S or something. Yeah, because we do get a sense that they were watching Mrs. S's house. So they somehow found Mrs. S through some means. And we have the impression that Mrs. S was part of a counterculture anti-government punk rock inspired movement that opposed the man and opposed the government interfering in people's lives. So, Which seems to be what the Birdwatchers had been. Yeah. 
until their desperation for cash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Money. But I think it's a great question, Chris. I don't know that we'll ever get a firm answer, but I've I've been thinking about that a lot, too. I haven't been, but I think it's a great question. And now I just want to talk about it forever, but I guess we can't. <laughs> what have you been thinking about, Sally? In this episode? I have, in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> She Thank just, you for the guidance, well, Stephanie. This was about to go in a whole other direction. I knew you just <laughs> dealt with a with a child poo emergency, so I wanted to steer us into <laughs> a very particular avenue. <laughs> and now, and now, Stephanie's announcing it to the entire internet. <laughs> <laughs> this episode, there's still a lot about Allison's play, which you know, if if you have been paying attention or listening to the podcast, then you know that. The play is actually a real play that existed out in the world before one of the people that worked on Orphan Black brought it to the producers of the show and said, you know, let's make this part of this storyline. And I, in general, like, I am a big fan of the device of story within a story. I don't know if anyone has read Watership Down. It is one of my favorite books by Richard Adams. It's the one about the rabbits, and Mm -hmm. it's an allegory about dictatorship and free will and living together and getting along and um so light reading <laughs> well it, it feels like light reading i read it when i was a kid and i loved it and then i read it as an adult i was like oh wow i get it now it's oh, saying something nice. totally different i like stories like that yeah it's so great for all ages i highly recommend it anyway throughout that story there are several like stories within a story that kind of serve to help illustrate a point and that's what i think happened in this episode too with the play And, you know, it's not that the plot of the play parallels the entire episode or arc of season two, but there's definitely, like, knowing what we know uh, about what happens in season two, you know, with Allison and Donnie in the second half, like, you know, I thought it was uh, just such a nice little dovetail with with the play that Allison is acting in at her community theater. Which is a good... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that sort of thing always just tickles me. But it's sort of great because, you know, when we first see it, I think we all kind of assume that they're just sort of echoing the Ainsley situation. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's totally it's totally about the thing with Donnie because they were wiping away the plasma. <laughs> <laughs> there are blood buds until the end now. <laughs> My big observation when I was re- visiting this episode is not necessarily specific to the episode itself. It was more that I noticed a trend while I was re- revisiting this particular episode. And and I listened to these episodes instead of watching them. I listened to them at work. And it made me, when you do that, you know, you're more aware of the sounds than you are because you're not distracted by the visuals. And I realized that we hear Allison clear her throat several times in these first few episodes, which sounds pretty much exactly the way that Cosima sounds when she's trying to not cough around people to hide the fact that, you know, she has a respiratory problem. It's possible. It's just a nervous tick. It's very possible. It's just a nervous tick. I recall Allison doing that several times in season one as well. But mm-hmm. it, I did start to worry, like, is this Tatiana Mislati doing some foreshadowing that Allison also might store, start showing respiratory symptoms? So that just thought, popped into my head in this episode. I love you guys because when I listen to your podcast live and also when you invite me on, you always bring up these things that I have never noticed before. <laughs> and now I, you have to start worrying about all sorts of things you didn't even know you had to worry about. Yeah, this, thanks a lot. <laughs> 
I think this is a and nice Sally's like, Sally's, jerks. I was going to say, this is a nice way of Sally saying, you guys, get a life. <laughs> <laughs> but she can't say that right now because she's with us. Yeah. <laughs> But I know, I know that I, that wasn't a question or anything. But that was just the big thing that jumped out at me as I was revisiting this episode. I don't want to make people worry. However, you know, Tatiana Maslany is just a really conscientious actress. So it's like, hmm, is she doing that on for a reason? It, I just always think about her choices when I revisit episodes. I mean, we know it's a possibility, of course, right? I mean, the only people really not vulnerable to this disease that we know of would be Sarah and Helena. So because they're fertile, yeah. Right. I don't think it's anything. Yeah, I would me too. Me too. You don't know. I I don't think that they I think they're going to consign that illness to Kasima. I and deal with that hurdle through her character. I don't think they're going to start spreading it to other clones, but it just was something that I noticed. Right. Well, who knows? I mean, is every clone prone to getting this respiratory illness. I mean, they're all genetically identical. Yeah. yeah. It seems... From what we know, the illness stems from what they did to prevent the clones from reproducing. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, doesn't... um, Isn't it... uh, Ethan says, you know, it's an error in the cloning process or something that arose from the cloning process that introduced this... Hmm, a mistake. I don't know. Maybe not. No, it's Susan's sterility concept. That's the word he uses. Ah, uh, right. So right, it, was, right. it was designed in. The, yeah, the autoimmune disease was designed to make the clones infertile. It was an unexpected consequence that it also has led to some of them developing these these polyps that spread throughout their body. So that part was not intended, but the infertility itself was intentional. Right. Right. Thank you for clarifying unforeseen consequences as we've said before i don't think they'll have anybody else get sick or at least if anybody else gets sick i don't think it'll progress to the point that kasima is already at because that's already a story that they're telling and it seems unlikely but who knows yeah they could they've got precious screen time they can use that time to tell different stories with the other clones so i i tend to agree exactly I think you're right in terms of storyline. They probably won't have anyone else get sick, but it seems like from a genetic or scientific standpoint, all of the infertile clones should eventually get sick. It's just a matter of when. Katya and Jennifer Fitzsimmons got sick sooner. If Allison's not sick yet, you know, check back in five or ten years. I'm guessing what they'll probably do is discover a way to cure it and save Cosima, and so, you know, they can then cure it and prophylactically Head, headed off at the pass in the other ones. Right. That's what I'm assuming will be the story they tell. Or if anybody else gets sick, it'll be, you know, shortly before they figure out how to fix it or something. I just had one other brief thing that I wanted to mention about this episode. It Are was you going to that- make us panic some more? <laughs> no, no, no. I was going to say <laughs> that I like the, the convenience store guy that Sarah and, and Felix steal food from. I like that he describes Felix as a new waiver, <laughs> just because <laughs> that is just not a description I would think to apply to anybody these days, but it's appropriate. Felix does embody <laughs> that type of aesthetic at times, but it, so it makes me laugh every time to hear him call a new waiver. I know it does. That's also 
somebody who lives out in the boonies, you know, might right. still be clinging to the old expressions. <laughs> like, this is still hip, right? <laughs> These kids are still new waivers. <laughs> or what was that? Wasn't there a joke on um, How I Met Your Mother that Canada is however far behind? Oh, yeah, like 20 years US behind. That's in, right. In pop culture, because. Wasn't that the well, thing with yeah, uh, that, that was Robin the Sparkles? On, Robin Sparkles' yes. video was totally 80s or 85, 80s-fied or whatever. <laughs> yeah, like she was Debbie Gibson. But, I mean, that is a joke, but it's also true. My um, cousin, <laughs> I mean, no offense, uh, Canadian listeners, but my cousin grew up in uh, the, uh, oh, I don't know, small town Ontario, about two hours outside of Toronto. So when we'd go visit her and her family every summer, we'd show up there and we'd look at what she and her friends were wearing and you know we'd be like huh you know like this was not that we were fashion mavens where we were from in small town ohio either but it seemed like things took a while to osmos out to the outskirts of ontario hmm well there you have it this would be they were like 30 years behind (laughs) yeah well i don't know about 30 years but please send all of your hate mail tweets to (laughs) at s heaven on twitter do not pin any of this on chris and stephanie (laughs) as stephanie started it so (laughs) how about how about you how about you chris do you have any other stray thoughts about the episode uh i was just wondering if we've seen the last of jennifer fitzsimmons i don't know that there's any reason to go back to Jennifer Fitzsimmons, but you never know. And it makes sense to me that Sarah would bring Kira to Cal's place after all of her family issues have been stirred up. Yep. Yeah, good point. And I don't understand why people don't like Angie when she and Art seem to be doing similar things. They're doing basically the same thing. They're working on this case, yeah. The only real difference to me is that Art has more insider info to work with. Like, he actually has more of an idea what's going on because he's actually, you know, Sarah has confided in him. Right. Angie has no way of knowing what the hell is going on. So she's just trying to figure it out. She's just being a good cop. Yeah. She is. I think that Angie is written and played as, you know, an overeager puppy, which can be a little bit, you know, I think she's deliberately supposed to come off as a little annoying and nosy. I think, though, that we've we've talked before about how we feel like Angie is sometimes misunderstood by some people. Or we feel like Angie is misunderstood. She's put in kind of an antagonist position in some stories, but really she's not doing anything wrong. She's defying her lieutenant, so there's that. But she doesn't really know what the whole picture – she doesn't, you know, she doesn't realize what type of trouble she might be stirring up for the clones. So she's just trying to investigate a, a case that she feels like was unjustly set aside. And it's personal because Beth. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on to episode 204, Governed as it were by chance. You want to start us off, Stephanie? Sure. The big thing that stuck out to me when I revisited this episode was the very beginning. And this is right after Cal has crashed into the car that Daniel and Sarah were in, you know, knocking Daniel out and and. Sarah is panicking in this moment, trying to figure out what to do. She was about to be kidnapped. She just saw Daniel shoot somebody in cold blood. And this cop car starts driving toward them. And Cal's saying, you know, we need to talk to the police. And she's saying, I can't handle the police. And as the cop car is driving toward them, we see Sarah kind of grip Daniel's gun, almost like she would be ready to shoot these police officers should they stop and give them 
problems. And that's a level of desperation in Sarah that we had yet to see. And luckily, nothing comes of it, right? The cop car drives on by, tension kind of fades a little bit, and things are okay. But I'm wondering if in in following seasons, if season three, or if we get a season four, if the writers might explore Sarah at that level of desperation again. You know, I I feel like we kind of have seen that, though, because I think season two ends with sort of a similar situation. Because I actually was just thinking times- about that as I was talking, like, well, we do see when she turns <laughs> herself over. But I don't know. But it's not like she went, she was going to hurt people because of it, necessarily. Though I guess she does hurt Rachel, huh? <laughs> Never mind. I just, uh, I'm talking myself out of, out of my question. And, and she shot Helena, too. Well, that was at the end yeah. of season one. That's true. Yeah. But still, similar but, situations of, you know, when it comes down to it. It's true. But Helena, as well as Rachel, they were more direct threats. Whereas these cops riding by, they would have just been kind of inconvenient. You know what I mean? They, those cops weren't pursuing Rachel, or excuse me, weren't pursuing Sarah the way that Rachel and Helena were. So I guess that's the difference for me. Well, I don't know. Because Kira is in danger at this point, and that's, right. I think, probably the only thing that Sarah is thinking about in that moment. And I don't know what she would have actually done. You right. know what I mean? Of like, course. I don't, yeah. I don't think she would have actually shot them unless they were actually, you know, proving to be with the bad guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But from that same scene, I realized that Sarah almost took Daniel's gun but then she put it back, you know, once mm-hmm. Cal's like, you know, Sarah, that's a murder weapon. Right. But that's the same gun that Rachel and Paul later used to frame Felix and blackmail Sarah. Which makes you think, oh, if she'd only taken a taken the gun, but it totally was the smart thing to do in that moment, was to leave the right. murder weapon with Daniel. But like, ah, all the little pieces, mm-hmm. you know. Anything, Sally? No, when you were, were talking about kind of the, what will Sarah do when she's desperate? especially when she's desperate to protect someone she loves, especially when it's Kira. It made me, I was remembering your previous episode about motherhood and all the different mothers and kinds of mothers in Orphan Black. And, um, you know, Kira for Sarah is, you know, the thing that she will go to great lengths to protect, even though we kind of see her in the beginning of the series as having been away for a while. She did, leave her in the care of someone who she trusted to keep her safe. And I think since they've been back together, she's become more and more determined not to let anything happen to her child, especially as she's clued into the sinister forces that are at work against them all. I think that's fair. I don't know about you guys, but I am more than a little grossed out that the Prolethians went to the trouble of dressing Helena in a wedding dress. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, but everything about that scene is so disturbing, but yeah, totally. I know. But I think we can officially call Helena's bloody wedding dress look iconic. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> well, there's a whole line of clothing uh, that came out that I saw announced this week, and one of them looks kind of like her wedding dress, right? Yes. Yep. That is the, the, the hot topic, is, is going to be carrying some Orphan Black-inspired clothes that they announced recently, and the Helena outfit is a modified version of that wedding dress and Helena's iconic green coat that she wore in season one with the kind of fur-lined hood. I kind of yep. want them both. And then there's red stuff all over the coat, too. <laughs> on the inside, <laughs> there's her yeah. rings. About that, though, I also am remembering your episode with Melanie Killingsworth, where you guys were talking about religion in Orphan Black, and the Prolethians 
as a cult. And it is gross that they went to the trouble of dressing her in a wedding dress. The whole thing is totally a charade. But, you know, for a cult that is trying to keep the women down and give them all the impression that they're actually doing what God wants them to do, all that stuff is very necessary. I think that we know as the viewers that it is a bunch of hooey, but, you know, for the people that are in the cult that Henrik needs to believe in it, then all of those trappings are necessary. It makes them super creepy. And I think it's quite possible that it's significant to Henrik, you know, even even though it's, right. from our perspective, a bit of a, a farce. I, I, for him, I, I think he actually does think that this is what God wants him to do. And this is part of this symbolic ritual is is having her in a white wedding dress while they are hand-fasted. But it's so super creepy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Plus, it's probably easier for him to convince himself that it's not super creepy if she's mm-hmm. in a wedding dress rather yeah. than she if she was in the hospital gown still. Yeah. Right. <sighs> Everything about it is so wrong. <laughs> anyway, we still don't know why Cal seems prepared to disappear. Does it have to do with the military or his ability to use the internet, perhaps? I, I We've talked about this before. I think it's part of the fact that he's a hacker and he's because he, he mentions he's tangled with corporations before. So I think it's it's related to that personally. So it is about his ability to use the internet. Yeah, that's my that's my theory. Do you think we're going to find out anything else about Cal's past, though, I wonder? I hope so. I think they've set up him up to be a pretty interesting character. And I don't well, I don't know, maybe not his past necessarily, but I, I do think that he could become an, an important, interesting ally for the clones in season three. I do think there's potential story to mine there, though. Yeah, for sure. The technology that he invented that then the military took, it was about bees and pollination, right? Is that right? Yes, it was. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he designed the fiber optics for the little drones that were the bees. So those are the things that help transmit the the pictures that the camera is capturing on the drone back to the person controlling the drone. Mm -hmm. And when you, but when you think about the original purpose of his project before it became militarized, pollination, you know, is a, is part of fertility for plants. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's also part of how bees get nectar to make honey, but the colony collapse disorder that's been plaguing bee colonies in North America, I don't know if it's worldwide or just around here that we're finally tracing uh, that it seems like it's a deadly cocktail of herbicide and some fungus or fungicide. Anyway, bees were being kind of devastated. I wonder if there's a parallel between that and the clones disease. Hmm. There's also could be a potential metaphor for the decreasing reproductive rates in industrialized nations. I kind of hate that word, but you know what I mean? Like the the UK, Western Europe, United States, we have falling reproduction rates uh, that, you know, to be at replacement level reproduction, which ensures a stable economy. It's like 2.2 babies born per every every person and or every couple and we are falling below those and Europe's economy has seen some effects of that and so that it also could be a metaphor for that as well. Hmm. <laughs> demographics. I love demographics. <laughs> <laughs> this I believe is it. Some deep shit you guys. Wow. <laughs> I don't mean deep shit like apparel, I mean <laughs> deep thoughts. Anyway, uh <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, and so why does Cal know how to do origami? Why not, Chris? Why not? I can make an origami lotus. The guy has layers. <laughs> no, I'm not criticizing. I just thought it was interesting that he knew how to do that and was able to do it without looking at instructions. I can still make a lotus, even though I learned how to do it when I was like 13, so almost almost 20 years ago. But like to be practiced at it and apparently have some origami paper handy, you know. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, also, Allison doesn't think she's ever, quote, done the nasty. Did she not remember having sex with Chad in a minivan? I, that's, I think, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Allison, you might need to reevaluate yourself. That was definitely doing the nasty. I mean, it was in a minivan in a parking lot. His wife but- was not that far away. <laughs> well, maybe, uh... Maybe her intentions matter to her perception about whether what she's doing is the nasty or whether what she's doing is having sex with someone to get revenge uh, on her husband. Well, I think totally subjectively, Allison would have just been offended in that moment that she would imply such a thing. However, we as as objective viewers, we got to say, Allison, you've totally done the nasty with Chad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just watching watching it this time. I was like, "Wait a second! Wait a Allison. second, Allison! Come on, fess up!" <laughs> <laughs> a little self awareness, Allison. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> as I was watching it, I was thinking, "Why do the pictures of Susan and Ethan Duncan from the newspaper clipping look like they're from the seventies? Because the clipping was supposed to have been from the nineties." Because they're but- in Canada and there's a delay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, I think they were in England, weren't they? Weren't they in the UK? They were, yeah. <laughs> but but it was explained by Kazima because yeah. they disappeared from 1976 until the lab explosion. Yeah. So there probably just weren't actually pictures of them right. since the 70s. So Right. And especially, especially for, you know, they're fairly low profile people. It's not like they're famous folks. So newspapers might have had to scramble for any type of picture that they could associate with these folks. There wouldn't necessarily be a lot of of pictures circulating with them of them in the kind of public access arena, especially in the nineties. Well, fashion is a cycle. Somebody told me yesterday that pegged jeans are coming back, which were big when I was. What in the hell are pegged jeans? Oh my god, we're having a cross generational (laughs) moment right now. It's when you take your jeans and you you push your socks down and then you fold over the bottom of your cuff the cuff of your jeans and um, wait, to wait, make wait, it wait, tight wait, wait, and wait, roll wait, it up. Wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that you have your socks over your jeans? No, 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 no. It's optional, but you can kind of pile your jeans on top of your scrunched up socks. Some people would what? wear two layers of socks. Oh, it was it was huge when I was in high school. Oh yeah. my god! What? Don't do not do this, people listening. Anyway. Do not do this, please. Anyway, this is coming back. Also, so. unbutton the top button of your collar, you hipster. <laughs> <laughs> and the top button being a uh, button was big when I was in high school, I, too. I know so it was. I know it was. It drives me crazy. Or whatever. It's now. It's all coming back. Whenever. Peg jeans. Like in Greece. <laughs> in the 50s. Okay. It's a 30-year cycle. Okay. Whenever I watch hmm. Roseanne, I get so frustrated with everybody having their bu- their shirts buttoned all the way up to the collar. Anyhow. <laughs> Moving on, I would just like to point out that Helena with a knife defeated Daniel with a loaded gun. Yeah, she did, because Helena's awesome. It was, like, loaded and cocked and everything, but nope. 
She's so awesome. <laughs> Isn't she? Moving on to episode 205, Ipsa Scientia Potestist Est. The big thing that dawned on me when I was watching this episode, and I felt really dumb that I didn't realize this before. Sally, especially Sally, is probably going to go, yeah, Stephanie. So they're talking about Cosima and Leaky. I should clarify. Cosima, Delphine, Leaky. They're talking about the original genome, right? And they're talking about the fact that it was lost and those, particularly those synthetic sequences were lost. For some reason, when they were talking about the synthetic sequences in the DNA before, it never connected with me that that meant that those sequences were made by human beings. I don't know why. I don't know why this is not down on me. So I finally, in this revisiting of this episode, I finally made that connection, which made the fact that back in the, I think it was the premiere, Rachel is talking to the Koreas about the recent U.S. patent business around around DNA. Mm-hmm. And that patent said that, you know, you could patent synthetic DNA sequences, but not naturally occurring ones. And she said that that went in their favor. It's like, oh, that's why. Because the while they used some woman's DNA to build upon to make the clones, it was the synthetic sequences that the dyad or the, the Duncans, the Duncans made, I guess, that actually made the cloning process work. So that totally left the door open for them to patent those sequences that made cloning possible. Totally didn't make that connection before, but I did when I was rewatching it this time. And now is where you two say, yeah, Stephanie, <laughs> you dumb dumb. Yeah, Stephanie. <laughs> I think that it's fabulous. Thank you, Sally. Sally's supportive. Chris is mean. <laughs> I was trying to be funny because I just said what you said I was going to say. <laughs> I'm like a comfortable bra. I am very supportive. <laughs> I think the implication, though, of that conversation that Rachel has with you know the visitors is kind of creepy if you're a person like the clones that has synthetic DNA that someone has patented in their body, what rights do they have over Mm -hmm. you? Yeah, totally. I would argue, Mr. Supreme Court Justice, none. Mm -hmm. But to be determined. I'm not sure. I don't know that this uh, is something in terms of the Dyad Institute and the synthetic sequence will be decided in the Supreme Court on the show. I think it's going to be decided by guns and ammo or something on the, on the show or in real life no no on the show not okay, in real okay, life okay. God, i hope not in real life i hope in real life it's decided in a civilized way by the supreme courts of <laughs> i was gonna um, i was gonna say sally damn <laughs> <laughs> i was like what does the nra have to do with anything <laughs> no no i mean i just i think there's there will still be violent confrontation maybe not guns and ammo maybe uh Maybe Helena with a knife. Maybe without violence. But it's TV and that seems unlikely. Yeah. Yes. So how about you, Chris? What was what was one of your big aha or big question moments for this episode? So I think my big question for the episode, Helena, you know, looking through this sniper rifle at Rachel and Paul, and she's all very pretty, dirty, sexy Rachel, like my mother. What does that mean? Yeah. Like my mother? Whose mother? Yeah. that's Which a, mother? That's a weird comment. Is that like anger toward Amelia coming out? Is that anger toward the original contributor of the clone DNA coming out? Who is she talking about? 
Because they've mentioned several people in the context of mothers. Uh, at some point, Helena refers to Mrs. S as mother. You know. Right. Who, That's who does true. she mean? That's true. Because in the previous episode, she said to Sarah, I followed you from mother's house, meaning Mrs. S. Right. And Mrs. S and Carlton, you know. But don't slut shame. <laughs> don't slut shame, Helena. Come on. <laughs> but pretty dirty sexy, Rachel. That's not inherently shaming i know i'm just teasing but but it's a good it's a good question what the hell does that comment mean helena that's yeah but i have several questions about some of the things that helena says okay i wanted to get your opinion because in the same episode helena says to art you know he lies down with pigs is that a reference to cops being pigs is she just saying oh this guy's a cop what 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 is that comment about? okay do you think that that's the case too sally before I offer a final opinion, and I want to go back and watch it again, so ha- hang on. No, just kidding. No, oh. I'm going to hold you to what you say here forever. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, Helena has been out of the loop of the vernacular for a while, so does she even know that you would call cops pigs, or that you would call a Harley a hog? Does she know these things? Or it seems like, to me, more like a biblical reference, because there are prohibitions in the Bible about, you know, not Mm. eating the flesh of unclean animals and don't eat things that crawl upon the floor of the ocean. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, you're not supposed to eat shellfish and clothing of mixed fibers. So I'm not exactly sure. You think it's like a Leviticus reference type of thing? Prohibitions? Well, maybe, but what did Art ever do to deserve a comment like that? I know, right? I mean, other than not being a fundamentalist. I kind of feel like it's mostly an excuse for Helena to make animal noises, because Helena loves making animal noises. And Helena makes lots of livestock references, but that particular one when I was watching through again, I was like, oh, is that a reference that art is a cop? But I I, I don't know, obviously. I I always assumed it was. I like, though, Sally's thought about it being some sort of biblical reference about not eating pigs. Because she was raised, you know, by awful awful people yeah. who had some pretty fundamentalist ideas. Yeah. Was it the self-flagellation that tipped you off? <laughs> Though I have to say, I feel like Helena did not adopt any type of food prohibitions from <laughs> her upbringing. <laughs> well, because it seemed like maybe they kind of starved her, so she's just kind of like, whatever I can get my hands on, I'm going to eat while I get a chance to. Well, one of the also... um you know, the English and the Irish, like the English looked down upon the Irish, you know, the peasants when they were exploiting Ireland for all the years, you know, they kind of were using it as their personal garden in the, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th century uh, until, you know, and some even think that maybe the, all of that kind of helped create the conditions for the potato famine. But anyway, part of their objection to the Irish people was that, you know, the Irish people would have their livestock in their cottages with them. You know, they didn't generally have, I guess, the resources to build outbuildings. Maybe they needed the extra warmth. I don't know. But you can edit all of that out because it's totally irrelevant, <laughs> except that... Uh, now, we're dropping all know, types of knowledge in this episode, Sally. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Just, uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of funny these days because people have house cats and you know, dogs and all kinds of pets, but, like, there was definitely a real kind of class thing between the English and the Irish about having your sheep and your pigs in your house with you in your cottage. Interesting. So she's calling Art Irish? (laughs) 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't know, Lassie, but it's possible. We'll have to ask Tatiana Maslany. So real fast, I wanted to mention a couple other things that that I thought of when watching rewatching this episode. I just again, I like how Kasima tries to cover for Delphine when they get caught in Leaky's office, but Delphine won't let her. It's this really sweet like I'm going to try to protect my girlfriend and then Delphine being like, "No, girlfriend, I'm going to protect you. This is my <laughs> fault." It just makes me smile. And then I was also reminded, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but the fact that Kasima outs the fact that she has contact with Sarah and is maybe friendly with Sarah by setting up the meeting between her and Dr. Leakey that happens at the end of this episode, it still seems like a strange choice to me because back in, in episode two, he was really quizzing her about, you know, what's your relationship with Sarah? If you're here, your position to really help her in a way that might not be good. I don't know. It just struck me as a strange choice that Kasima is so flippantly sort of revealed the fact that, hey, I have contact with Sarah, and maybe I'm even friends with her. And I get that. But at the same time, the this takes place after Leaky sort of makes a gesture toward Cosima and Delphine. He's right. like, you know, I'm the one who sent you that sample, because Rachel doesn't want me to help you, but I want to help you. Right. So I think it's sort of a gesture in return. I'm on board with it. Okay. Also, I love bloody wedding dress Helena lounging on Felix's sofa. Just that whole scene just cracks me up. I know I've said it before, but I'm saying it again. Even after seeing it a dozen times, I love Kira and Cal's sock conversation. That is a great little scene between the two of them. Like, you're going to need more than just really big socks. (laughs) And then there's also Helena's socks in this episode. There's a lot of great sock stuff in this episode. And I do like socks. Yes, Helena is wearing mismatched socks on the dash of of Mrs. S's truck. <laughs> Which is just very appropriate for Helena, I feel like. It is. I still love that comment from Tatiana Maslany that Helena, at any given moment, has no clue what she looks like. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Yes. What deeper message do you think that the show is trying to convey with all the sock commentary, though? (laughs) I don't know. Could it be a metaphor for... (laughs) A sock contains a foot. A sock... Never mind. A sock is maybe something that covers a foot. You know, it it, it binds... It keeps it from being in the rest of the... Is it something about feminism? (laughs) (laughs) Socks are associated with coziness, right? <laughs> Warmth. It's feminism, Chris. <laughs> the answer is always feminism. The Celtic people, including the Irish and the Scottish, wear stockings with their kilts. What about their pigs? <laughs> I don't think they put socks on their pigs. But no, we're, you- we're back to livestock, though, because sheep. For the wool, <laughs> for the yarn, for the socks. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we've just cracked the code, you guys. <laughs> Do you want cow baby or horse baby? I want sheep baby because therefore I make my own wool. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Helena's hair does kind of look a little... A little woolly? It does. It's yeah. like it's got lanolin in it, like it hasn't been washed recently. Hey, what's, too. A, what's a pirate's favorite kind of sock? Argyle. That's right. 
Moving on. Scott is so cute. I applied with a letter from the dean. Oh, oh Scott. So dorky. <laughs> and there's that scene where Sarah and Cal are on the Skype call and they they have like sequential shots of them running their hands through their hair. Do we think that's meant to convey compatibility? Or am I reading too I, much into things? It's pr- yeah, probably a little, but I, I do hope that Sarah and Cal are compatible. I'm I'm all for the the lumberpunk family. <laughs> as much as I, as much as I hate that ship name, I I am all for the the good hair family. <laughs> Thank you. Well, maybe it's also they say that when a woman is trying to flirt with someone, that part of what she'll do unconsciously or consciously is play with her hair, run her fingers through her hair. Maybe it was a message that Cal loves Sarah and wants to, you know, be her boyfriend. So they love each other because they both did it. Yes. Mm. Isn't isn't mirroring also like a thing, like a like a flirty thing too? Sometimes that sheep. I think oh, mirroring is like a flirty thing, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I see what you did there. (laughs) Do you? Do you see what I did there? (laughs) And we got some feedback from Greg. He says, I've been asking this in a few places elsewhere, but I might as well ask it here. In the finale, Rachel was calling a guy. He means the uh, first season finale, I should add. Rachel was calling a guy, telling him, you know what to do. And we think it was Rachel's people who ransacked Mrs. S.'s house. Because it wasn't, who was Rachel talking to? By the way, I've been rewatching the series, and Paul's story is starting to come together. Mrs. S. is still the confusing one, though. Hmm. Well, I have a, I have an answer for Greg's question. And it is, it is answered, his question is answered in episode 201. And... What we think happened in the finale where Rachel calls and says, you know what to do, is what actually happened. She sent people over to Mrs. S's house to kidnap Kira. She reveals to Sarah in episode 201 when Sarah comes to Dyad and breaks in and confronts her. She reveals to her that when we showed up, the place was already ransacked and they were gone. So essentially, what we thought happened happened. It's just that Mrs. S had already taken Kira and gotten the heck out of Dodge. So they weren't. She beat them to the punch. Yes, she beat them to the punch. So what happened, what we thought happened actually happened. It's just they weren't successful in following out Rachel's orders. Which I kind of figured. Yeah. So I hope that helps, Greg. <laughs> and I agree. Mrs. S is still an enigma. A sexy, but- sexy enigma. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> I mean, you're right, but... You can forge on as if I said nothing. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's obvious to me. To me, it seems obvious that they're deliberately making Mrs. S the enigma. The sexy enigma. Right? Oh, yeah. I <laughs> I didn't think you required a response, but sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't, think, <laughs> but if you want to. I think so, too. I think it's definitely a, an intentional thing that they're doing. I'm still hoping we'll get some, some more details, but they're t- clearly taking their time with revealing everything that they're planning to reveal with Mrs. S. And dang it, it's working. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> but, like, good crazy. Yes, of course. Of course. Everything about Orphan Black is good crazy. We like her international badassery. <laughs> Mrs. Paul. <laughs> Mrs. Paul, international badass. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. 
obsessed <laughs> is what you are. Not that that's a bad thing. Thank you. We want to thank Sally for being a guest on our on our podcast again. Thank you so much for being here, Sally. What, do you want to plug something before before we go? Uh, I just shouldn't say that I to just... you. That just sounds so dirty. I'd say nothing remotely <laughs> dirty sounding to Sally. This is my advice to our listeners. Is there anything you'd like to mention, Sally, before we before we <laughs> end? I want to thank you guys for inviting me and or for putting up with me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to plug. The Tatiana is Everyone podcast, which needs no plugging if you're listening to this, because you've already found it. Details. I swear, people are going to think we're paying you to say these things. Thank you, Sally. (laughs) You should also watch Lost Girl, and if you don't know what that is, then Google it, and then listen to Drinks at the Doll, (laughs) the podcast, the definitive podcast (laughs) companion to Lost Girl. We are not paying her. Thank you, Sally. (laughs) We're paying her in friendship. We're paying her in friendship. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Still, thank you, Sally. Yes, thank you, Sally. We would love to hear your thoughts about the first half of season two of Orphan Black. You can go tell us your thoughts over at tatianaiseveryone.com slash 60. You can also send us an email to feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com, or you can send us a voicemail by calling our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. We're also on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we're on Facebook. And in this episode, the socks were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. Really big socks. <laughs>